Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, episode 30. We've reached a 30-hole uh, regular episodes. We got more than that uh, usually, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the counting of the many episodes and other things like that. But 30 regular episodes, never missing a week, although I really kind of thought I was going to miss this week, only because I'm so goddamn tired, and it's just, you know, work and stuff like that. But uh, we're still... Getting it done, making it happen, telling stories, and informing the world about interesting things that all you have to do is look back in time and you'll see some of the best stories that you've ever heard of. My name is Kyle. I'm still the host of this ridiculous podcast. Guys, how's it going? How's your life? How's your wife? How's uh, the other things that rhyme with those words? What up? Um, yeah, like I said, I have just been, just been a, a, a tired boy lately and, uh, finding the motivation to keep doing the episodes, uh, in a timely way has kind of been a little bit low on my list of, uh, things that I consider priorities, but that's okay. We're still making it happen as we always do. Although I will say, and we'll probably talk about it in the May prequel episode at some point upcoming I'm gonna have to take a little bit of time off although I don't know when that'll be and it probably won't be for very long it'll probably literally be like a week or something like that but it is kind of grindy to do an episode every single week and 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 go through the go through the the editing and the production and all that stuff and you know it's just one of those one of those things that you kind of wish that you know, if I did this full time as my job, it wouldn't be such a big deal because it would just be my work. But I'm doing it sort of as a side thing, as a hobby, as a thing I like to do. I do enjoy speaking on the microphone and, and doing these shows like this. But at the same time, it can get a little, uh, it can get a little stale at times. Not saying that I that I don't like doing it. Don't get me wrong uh, in that way at all. But at the same time. You know, we've been doing this whole thing since late August or early September of 2017. It is April of 2018, and I haven't missed a single week yet. So as, of course, you know, going through the the graduating and ending of school and the stress that that caused studying for my board test and then starting work uh, and, and doing that for the last few months has just been, you know, it's just one of those things where it's all a gigantic blur sometimes that I even am able to do all that stuff and get an episode out that is even like if you if you are a a constant listener of the show and thank you by the way if you are you'll probably notice that sometimes my episodes uh, are aren't so great and I always you know in a self uh depreciating type of way I like to say that it's a pretty mediocre podcast and I stand by that 100% it's a thing that I like to do uh, the stories are fun. Uh, you probably will learn something from it, but it, it, it's never going to be anything that ever 
breaks out big time is never going to be something that people just go, oh, God, have you ever listened to that podcast? Jesus Christ, like, it's the best thing ever uh, since sliced bread. That's never going to be the way it goes. I do it because um, I like to tell the stories. Uh, I found that it's a fun hobby to do. You know, I never would have thought of myself as the type of person that would ever be a podcasting type anyway. And, you know, at the same time, it's helping me kind of re relearn how to love history, the thing that I've always loved anyway, but then gotten back into a lot more and, you know, with telling stories and stuff like that while doing this show. But just to say what's on my mind, that's what's going on, has nothing to do with the show today. I just wanted to get it off my chest as we go forward. We're still making it happen, though, in Ladies Month on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. April of 2018 is Ladies Month, and today we are going to talk about a group of women, not just a single woman, but a group of brave and, uh, frankly, a little bit insane women from the Soviet Union, an interesting uh, place. We usually stick within the confines of the United States, and sometimes we go overseas to you know the British and, and some other things like that. But today we are going to speak about some Russian women, some Soviet women, the night witches of World War II. Guys, stick with us. Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, episode 30. The Night Witches is a nickname given to a group of women, Soviet women, who flew for the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, known that time as the 46th Guards Night Bomber Aviation Regiment of the Soviet Air Forces. This nickname was given to them by the Germans who they were bombing at the time. Isn't that kind of a funny thing, just like our episode on the uh, the Harlem Hellfighters also given their nickname by the Germans. Uh, oftentimes, you would be, you know, these, these Germans would be getting their, their shit pushed in, for lack of a better expression, by certain types of things, and they would always, uh, uh, maybe for dramatic effect, I don't even really know, but they would give these awesome nicknames, to them and would later allow us to talk about those things in a really cool ass way and we can all thank the Germans for getting (laughs) attacked by something or someone at some point in history making a nickname for them and then allowing me in 2018 to make an episode with a title as cool as the Night Witches so this group was a group made entirely of women who fought for the Soviet forces during World War II between 1942 and 1945, 1945 being the last year of World War II. They fought on, of course, the Eastern Front being 
as uh, context-wise, as we always talked about context, Germany at this time and its Axis allies, Italy, uh, Japan, and others, but typically in the European theater, you have Germany the, is the main, you know, Nazi Germany is, is the main antagonist, the main giant war machine, and they have allies like in Italy, although Italy is honestly pretty shitty in comparison, uh, not quite as strong, not quite as many resources, uh, and, and really Italy folded pretty quickly during the war, which kind of sucked for Germany, who was kind of counting on their help when they decided to be super, super arrogant and not, not learn a lesson from World War One and decide to start a war on two fronts, the Western Front, where we often think of stuff um, when we all look at our movies and things like Saving Private Ryan. Uh, any type of World War II movie where Americans are involved is going to be a movie that almost always takes place on the Western Front of World War II, where you're fighting into, you know, France, into Germany, you know, into that part of, of Europe, maybe in Italy a little bit as well. But on the other side of Europe, you have a war ongoing with Germany and Russia. Now, Russia really kind of wasn't involved in World War II right off the bat, a lot like America wasn't involved with World War II right off the bat. The big thing was World War II starts by Germany going, well, it's time, let's do it, and then just starts blitzkrieging and taking over fucking everything. But even at first in Nazi Germany doing this, and everyone knew that this this belligerence should not stand, man. This belligerence was still kind of, uh, you know, isolated to this this Central Europe kind of area, but everyone saw the writing on the wall and knew that Nazi Germany wasn't just going to stop with places like Poland. They were going to continue going west, and they were going to continue moving eastward. Now, to bring it up to our current story about the Night Witches, Hitler thinks it's a great idea to bust this sort of uh, this sort of neutrality pact, this sort of anti-aggression pact that he has with Joseph Stalin, the uh, leader of Soviet Russia. Of course, because he's getting ultra arrogant at the fact that during the early parts of World War II, Germany was actually extremely successful. They were extremely successful because their tactics were advanced, their weaponry and training was advanced, and it took a skip a time for allied forces being the British and the French, um, although they weren't hardly involved in World World War II in a large scale, being conquered very quickly by Germany and their, like I said, advanced tactics, uh, the United States and others of that ilk. It took a while to basically catch up with what the Germans were doing. So for the first couple years of the war, Germany was just kicking ass and taking names taking territory, doing what they were doing, and really just just beating ass. And at this point, Hitler and his forces get this very big head saying, hey, man, we should go east and fuck up Russia because look at them. And he wasn't entirely wrong. He wasn't really right either. But he wasn't wrong to look at the Russian forces and say, look at these guys. They don't have the best weapons. They don't have hardly any weapons in comparison to us. We are a better trained force. We are stronger and we are, you know, we are more disciplined and we should easily be able to roll over the Soviet Union. And for a short time, as they moved east into the Russian held uh, areas, 
that this was the case. The Russians were woefully, woefully not prepared for this type of war. Their guns were from World War I. There were soldiers who were being conscripted into the army that didn't get a gun, if you can imagine. Just people with, like, nothing. Like, if you have a gun, if you have a gun at home, go ahead and bring it. Otherwise, you're not going to get one from us. And this sort of followed the Soviet idea of just throwing fucking everything at the wall and seeing how it goes. Un, unfazed by the sacrifice of life, this was just the way of war in the Eastern Front. And it sort of became effective in that way because all of the Germans were advanced or more advanced in technology and more advanced in tactics and discipline in their soldiers' training. The winter and the just massive amount of of human shield, so to speak, that the the Soviets would throw at them started to get to them. And one part of this just harassment nightmare that the Soviets would do to the German forces that were uh, being aggressive towards them on this Eastern Front were the night witches. Now, you look at the story and you look at what they were given to do the job that they were they were tasked with, and you say, holy shit, how did this ever work? I don't understand. And just like we were talking with the 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 Russians being woefully unprepared for World War II or woefully un uh, uh or ill-equipped, I should say, for this type of large-scale grand world scaled war, the night witches, this this large amount of women that were conscripted to do these bombing runs, were doing bombing runs in an aircraft, and I'm about to butcher the name of this aircraft, the Polykarpov PO2. Uh, I will link pictures when I post this on Facebook uh, the day the episode is released. But this is for uh, for those who you know for the for the podcast listener, as this is not a visual medium. It is a biplane. Biplane meaning a wing on the top and a wing on the bottom. Something you might find more at home in World War One and its immediate aftermath, and not during World War II, when we had aircraft that were single-winged and were probably triple, if not quadruple, the speed of something like this, much more advanced in technology than this particular aircraft. But at the time, the Soviets didn't have really any other options. There really weren't, there really weren't that many planes in their arsenal to begin with, and this plane was kind of used as a training plane during the inner the interwar period between World War One and World War Two. So they happened to have a lot of them on hand, but they just they were just a a, a bombing kind of utility little crappy biplane that wasn't very fast, wasn't very armed. You know, I mean, this is the type of thing that you literally are basically bringing a knife to a gunfight with. But despite the lack of technology with this, these women of the Soviet Union, codenamed, nicknamed the Night Witches, made extremely highly effective runs in these planes. Now, before we get into how they did their work, let's just talk a little bit about the background of how these women came into being as the, um, as the Night Witches, the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. So, why women... In the first place, uh, as we look at our timeline, we see that this is happening during the 1940s, not the best time for women to be included in the stuff that was typically 
uh, reserved for for males, typically that being warfare. As we were talking about before, just a couple of minutes ago, the Soviets were extremely, extremely desperate for bodies to use on their war effort. I mean, people were being absolutely annihilated by the Nazi Germany forces launching uh, their operation into the Soviet Union. And this particular regiment was basically born of that desperation. Very fortunately, as we will see, this desperation on the part of the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin ends up paying off very highly, which goes to prove that, hey, maybe you could have done something like this before or included women before, and you might have had a way, 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 way easier time with what you're doing than just saying, oh, fuck, we're getting destroyed. I guess we better use the ladies, and then going, oh, man, maybe we maybe we made a mistake not doing this in the first place. This regiment, this squadron, was the brainchild of a woman known as, quote, the Soviet Amelia Earhart, a woman named Marina Raskova, She was famous not only as the first female navigator in the Soviet Air Force, but also for doing her own large amount of long-distance flights, having records in some of those flights. She had been receiving letters from women all across the Soviet Union wanting to join the World War II effort. This woman, Marina Raskova, was an idol to these ladies, showing that she could do the same thing that the men were doing just as well as they were doing, just like Amelia Earhart showed that a female pilot can be an amazing pilot and role model. Raskova kept hearing from these women that they wanted to be pilots as well. Most of the time, women were only participating in in support-type roles during this war, but a lot of these women wanted to be pilots. They wanted to be gunners. They wanted to fly on their own and contribute to the war effort, a very patriotic thing in its own right. Many of them had lost their brothers or their boyfriends or their husbands or their sweethearts or whatever you want to call it, and a lot of them had seen their homes and villages absolutely annihilated by German forces, ravaged, burned. So, seeing an opportunity, Marina Raskova then petitioned Joseph Stalin to let her form an all-female fighting squadron. So, on October 8th of 1941, Stalin gave orders to deploy three all-female Air Force units. The women would not only fly missions and drop bombs, they would return fire, making the Soviet Union the first nation to officially allow women to engage In combat, those nasty commies over in the Soviet Union being a little bit more progressive than we give them credit for. Previously, women were really only relegated to tasks like transferring planes, loading ammunition, and then after which the men who were flying the missions would then take over. Marina Raskova then quickly started to fill out those teams of women. She had over 2,000 applications from which she selected 400 women for each of the three units. Most of those women were students, ranging in ages from 17, as young as 17, to 26. After they were all selected, these women were moved to Ingalls, a small town north of Stalingrad, which had been taking a gigantic hammer to the face during the war effort, to begin training at the Ingalls School of Aviation. They underwent a highly compressed education as they did not have a a great deal of time to become good at being pilots or pilots even at all. They were expected to learn in a few months what it took most soldiers several years to grasp. Each recruit had to train and perform as the pilot, as navigators, 
and as maintenance and ground crew for their own plane. So you just basically have this giant self-sufficient female regiment of, of bomber pilots. Beyond this insane learning curve as well, so already you are going into this 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 incredibly complicated thing. It's so difficult to learn. Beyond that, these women did face skepticism from some of the male military personnel who believed that they didn't add any value to the combat effort, right? Typical dude just seeing some women just, you know, learning shit that it took them years to learn in months, and they're just adding no damn value to the combat effort, right? Marina Raskova did her best then to prepare her women for these attitudes, kind of thickening their skin, but they still face sexual harassment, long nights, and grueling conditions. The men didn't like the little girls going to the front line. It was a man's thing, as some of these men were quoted as saying. As we stated before, they had to make do not only with this insanely compressed uh, training regimen, they also had to be make use of that crappy-ass biplane as their main source of, of combat. Since they were unprepared for women pilots, they offered them those meager-ass resources. They received hand-me-down uniforms from male soldiers, which were things like oversized boots and oversized uh, pants and jackets and uh, shirts because, of course, they didn't really ever make anything for, for the women, which were typically a little bit smaller than the average uh, Soviet male serving in the military. Uh, it led to them having to tear up bedding and stuff them in their boots to get them to fit. Of course, like I said, they were they were uh, equipped with this uh, Polykarapov PO2 biplane. They also flown 1920s-style crop dusters that had been used as training vehicles. So this little plane, and we'll get back into that a little bit, the, the, the equipment used, it was a little two-seater plane, open cockpit, and it was never actually really meant for combat. It was like a coffin with wings, they said made out of plywood with canvas pulled over. The aircraft offered virtually no protection from the elements. So literally, you're just like, well, it's the winter in the Soviet Union. How about we fly, you know, this many feet up into the air? It's cold as shit, but there's no way we can heat this because we're just open to the elements. So good luck, ladies. It offered no protection from the elements. Flying at night, these pilots endured freezing temperatures, wind, and of course, frostbite. These planes would become so cold to the touch during these winters on the ground that touching them would rip off bare skin. Another amazing thing that these women did to make up with the lack of resources was because of this old-ass plane, and because the planes were so light and the engines so weak, they had a, a sort of... Uh, you couldn't carry as many things or luxury items, like you might call them, on a more modern aircraft because of the weight and because of limited funds to even put those things in there if you could, if you wanted to try. So, things that their male counterparts had in their bigger planes were parachutes, which they didn't get to have, radar, which they didn't get to have, guns and radios they also didn't get to have. These ladies instead were forced to use more rudimentary tools, like rulers, stopwatches, flashlights, pencils, maps, and compasses. These ladies doing goddamn trigonometry up in the air on the fly, still making it happen in an amazing way. I mean, obviously, they, they weren't given the things that would probably have made their missions even easier 
than they than they made them look at the point. They instead had to do it basically the old-fashioned way, and they still made that shit happen. There was, interestingly enough, though, some advantage and upside to these older aircraft being used almost in the surprising way. Like when you use something old and weird, people are like, what are you doing? And you almost can't adapt to how weird that sort of thing is in place during combat. Their maximum speed was slower than the stall speed of most of the Luftwaffe Nazi aircraft, which meant that these wooden planes actually could maneuver more quickly than enemy aircraft, making them very hard to target. They could also easily take off and land from most locations, since they didn't need a long runway to to get up to speed and go, nor to land when they were doing that. So you put these planes in the combat, they're very difficult to actually take out, even though literally a couple bullets here and there from a Nazi uh, aircraft that they would connect would take them down very quickly. They were very hard to touch in the first place, a very uh, nimble and agile type of aircraft. So as these planes were being deployed, this is how their tactics sort of worked. So you have all these biplanes and you have a ton of women flying them. This particular biplanes, like we said, because of, 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 of being so light, not being able to carry the things they you know needed to carry, when they went into combat could only carry two whole bombs at a time. Uh, one underneath each wing. When you think about bombing aircraft in World War II, like the classic American B-29, B-24 type of aircraft, they could carry hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth of bombs, not just two fucking bombs, but many bombs. And they would uh, have many aircraft bombing the shit out of areas. These aircraft would only carry two bombs because that was all they could carry. In order to make meaningful dents in the German front lines because they could only carry two bombs, the regiment would send out 42-person crews a night. So two people in the biplane, and there would be 40 of those biplanes running missions all night long. Each would execute between 8 and 18 missions a night. So they would put their strap their two bombs up. The two of them would hop into the biplane. They would take off. They would run towards their target. They would drop their bombs, and they would come back, and they would strap up two more bombs, take off, do it again, up to 18 times in a night. The weight of the bombs, by the way, actually forced them to fly at a much lower altitude, of course, making them an easier target, which is why they had to fly at night. So already, it's there's 98 things making this more difficult. And by the way, BTW, you have to fly like pretty close to the goddamn ground to even make this work. So if anybody even sees you, you're like, you're fucked. So this is the reason they had to do these at night, landing to part of their name, the Night Witches. Now, why otherwise did the Germans call these women the Night Witches just because they because they were people who came at night? Did they know that they were women? Unlikely. The Germans probably didn't know that these women were women in these planes, in these weird-ass biplanes. The biggest thing, the funnest part of this story, in my opinion, was that when these women would fly into these missions as they were getting closer to their targets, they had to do what was called flying in stealth mode. So flying in stealth mode meant that these planes would actually idle their engines and glide in complete darkness to their bombing area. So the way the tactics would 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 
work out is these planes absolutely didn't have any other mission or part besides bomb with the two bombs they were coming in with. They didn't have, like I said, they didn't have guns. They didn't have ammunition to defend themselves. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So, And they weren't fast either. They couldn't just strafe in, run in, uh, lay down some fire, boom, run out and, and get out of there. They just kind of had to take a straight line shot at their target. So what would happen is that you would travel in these these packs. So maybe they would send up four to eight at a time in pack form. The first planes would go in as bait, and they would attract the German spotlights, which would then, boom, illuminate the area, which helped them have, you know, the targets that they needed to bomb. Uh, these planes that didn't really have ammunition would then release a flare to light up the intended target. So they 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 crack a flare, drop it, and they would say, here you go, here's where we're bombing. And then, like we said, that last plane or last couple of planes would go to idle its engines and glide without the sound of the engine in stealth mode, making it very, very difficult to track. This stealth mode and these wooden planes covered in canvas would make this really weird whooshing sound, kind of like a broom brushing up the floor. Hence... The witch part of the night witches. These these nighttime uh, broom sweeping sounds would come and all of a sudden bombs would be falling on top of the Germans. They wouldn't know where they were from. They wouldn't know what was going on. They couldn't track them. By the way, these planes were so small that they were actually very difficult to track. Radar-wise, they would fly very low, which also made them difficult to track by radar and this stealth tactics at night, especially when they were gliding with no engine noise and lights on them, would be practically completely invisible and would strike basically before the Germans could ever, ever respond in kind. These women also kind of followed their own little commandments or uh, sayings that they were that they would use, you know, to 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 strike and invoke uh, a pride in their unit. The first was to be proud that you are a woman. You know, killing Germans was their job, and in their downtime, the heroic flyers still did needlework, patchwork, decorated their planes, and they still danced. They even put the pencil they used for navigation into duty as eyeliner. So ladies still wanting to do the things that they had always enjoyed doing, uh, whether those are culturally in there or not, whatever it is, they would still do the things that set them apart from the men while still, you know, having time to go out there and uh, kick ass. The last mission was flown on May 4th of 1945 when the Night Witches flew within 60 kilometers or 37 miles for all of my American friends of Berlin. Three days later, Germany then officially surrendered and uh, that part of World War II ended. The Germans had two theories about why these women were so successful. First, their, their first theory was that they were all criminals who were masters at stealing and had been sent to the front lines as punishment. So these these super thieves, uh, all, you know, thousands of them, were sent to the front lines and somehow used their master thieving of, of, of nighttime to make them incredibly effective bombers. Or the other theory, that they had been given special injections or taking special pills that allowed them to have night vision. Of course, this is ridiculous, but... You kind of, when you're getting your ass kicked, you kind of try to find any excuse at all to, to you know, say why you were losing. It couldn't possibly be because these women were just better than you 
and had better tactics and were more clever. It's because they had to be injected and saw at night like cats. Overall, these women accumulated 28,676 flight hours, during which they dropped 3,000 tons of bombs and 26,000 incendiary shells, all two at a time, basically, damaging or completely destroying 17 river crossings, nine railways, two railway stations, 26 warehouses, 12 field depots, 176 armored cars, 86 firing points, and 11 searchlights. In addition to the bombings, they also performed 155 supply drops of food and ammunition to the Soviet forces. 32 of these women died of various causes during the time, including some plane crashes, combat deaths, and tuberculosis also took its toll. 28 of their aircraft were destroyed. 23 of these women from the regiment were awarded the title Hero of the Soviet Union, which is uh, pretty akin to the Medal of Honor in the United States, if you're familiar with that award. Uh, Two of them were awarded Hero of the Russian Federation later on, and one was awarded the Hero of Kazakhstan. Uh, One woman in particular, Arena Sabrova, flew 1,008 sorties, which is the the missions that they had run in this war, which was more than any other pilot in the regiment. Actually, she was the one who said that it was absolutely ridiculous that the Germans thought that they were injecting themselves with uh, something that could help them see at night. She then said that it was, of course, because they were actually more clever and that their women were all fantastic pilots. Of course, this being the time that it was, despite being the most highly decorated unit in the Soviet Air Force during the war, that's of all Soviet air units, this one, this one in particular, the 588th, was the most highly decorated unit. The Night Witches Regiment was disbanded six months after the end of World War II, And when it came to the big Victory Day parade in Moscow, they were not included because of the stupid reason their planes were too slow. Of course, their planes weren't too goddamn slow to drop 3,000 tons of bombs during the sort of the war. But, of course, they're too slow for the parade. And despite being so awarded, they were basically uh, brushed under, ironically, with the broom of the Soviet Union under the rug uh, to be forgotten about for the most time. Although, now that you know, you will never forget the story of the 588th, the Night Witches of the Soviet Union. And now, of course, your fact of the week. There were three Japanese soldiers, this is a World War II fact, it has nothing to do with what we just talked about in the episode, but three separate Japanese soldiers who didn't surrender or or stop their warfighting type efforts until the 1970s. The first of which is 1972, Shoichi Yokoi. He was in Guam and was captured in 1972. He said that he knew the war was over since 1952, but decided he didn't want to shame himself or his family or whatever he thought was was going on with that, so he didn't surrender. Uh, Hiro Onoda was in the Philippines until 1974, 
uh, thinking that the war was still going on and thinking that a lot of the things that were telling him, hey, dude, surrender, were propaganda, until finally uh, he was told by his superior officer that, yes, indeed, the war was over, and he came back to Japan after that. And then, of course, the last man, the final man to hold out, Teruo Nakamura, didn't give out until uh, 1974, later on in the year, from the previous man, he was stopped from his own personal war effort in Indonesia. That is insane. That three separate Japanese soldiers fought on for 20 more years on a war that had already ended in 1945. And so it goes. Episode 30 of The Knowledge from the Couch Podcast has come to a glorious, glorious end. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow the show at The Couch Pod on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Search The Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. You will find us there. You can email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com. If you like living in 1994, you can also find us anywhere podcasts can be found. If you have an iPhone, you are probably listening to this through Apple Podcasts. We are there. Leave a rating, a review, and subscribe to the podcast there. If you are on Android, there are a great deal of podcast apps where you can find our show, namely things like Stitcher and Google Play and Overcast and Pocket Cast and TuneIn and all the other good ones. Search for the Knowledge from the Couch podcast with me, Kyle Steinhauser, and you will be listening to my to my dulcet tones in your ear way forms. Words are hard to come up with when you are a tired boy. Guys, we will continue our excursion on the fantastic women of the world in Ladies Month on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast next week. Until then, you guys, live long, and of course, while you're living long, prosper. We bop and tippity hop And as happy as I can be